and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden, your roadmap on the winding roads through Swedish history. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris, and this is episode 65, means the podcast has reached my brother's lucky number. <laughs> yeah, hope this is a lucky episode for you, Jack. Today we're going to keep going with the recap of what we've covered so far, which we began last episode. But we discovered that we had talked about so much and so many interesting things that we couldn't fit a recap to just one episode. So we continue this week. Yes, so we're going to go and look back at what happened on our journey after the Viking Age ended and all the way up until the present episode in the podcast, pretty much. Although we won't cover too much of Magnus's reign because that's very recent. But yep, we're going to cover a good 300 years of history or so. But before that, it's time for the Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, this week's phrase is som ett brev på posten which literally translates to English as like a letter in the mail. It means that something arrives speedily or happens instantly. So you could say, did my colleague send you that file? Oh yes, it arrived som ett brev på posten, meaning you got it instantly. Or you could say, oh well, just my luck. I wore my new high heels to the dance and got blisters som ett brev på posten, meaning you got blisters on your feet right away. Whether it's used figuratively or literally, it's certainly ironic that something being referred to as happening like a letter in the mail means it happens right away, at least in Sweden, because we found out that that's not necessarily what happens nowadays. No, you're right. It's a well-known fact and certainly... All our listeners who live in Sweden will be familiar with this. The Swedish postal system doesn't function very well and mail and packages often take a long time to arrive and frequently get lost. Sorry if you work for Postnord and uh, you listen to this podcast. We're sure it's not just, it's not your fault. It's the system. <laughs> Postnord is the name of the postal company, basically. The post system was privatized a few years and so now it's a company called Postnord that runs it. And of course, we're not blaming any single individual, but the system as a, as a whole doesn't really do what it's meant to do, I suppose. But yes, this phrase is a bit older than uh, that privatisation, so uh, it, maybe it was from a time when the posts arrived a little bit quicker. I actually listened to a very interesting episode of a podcast called Språket, which is Swedish for the language, made by our public service broadcaster Esser, where they talked about this phrase and how maybe now, since the reference, like a letter in the mail, equals quickly doesn't really work anymore maybe the meaning will change so that it will gradually start to mean the exact opposite it will start to mean that something arrives late the language professor that co-hosts the podcast said he'd already started to hear examples of this in how young swedes uh, use the phrase that's really cool that it's uh, changing its uh, usage and what it actually means. And it shows you really shows you that like language is alive, even though it might remain in the language. It could end up meaning something totally opposite. I know it's super interesting. 
Språket, by the way, is a really interesting podcast if you want to learn more about the Swedish language. They cover all manner of topics related to the language and they answer listeners' questions. It is in Swedish though, and whilst I don't think you need to be fluent to follow it, you should have a basic understanding of the language to uh, probably enjoy it. But if you are able to listen and understand Swedish, uh, definitely give Språket a listen. It's really good. Great. Uh, last time when we finished our recap, we said bye-bye or hey door to the Vikings around the mid-11th century. We then chugged along on our journey and entered the period that's often referred to as the High Middle Ages as we uh, continued going through the chronology of Swedish history. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yes, and... We began back then with two episodes on the theme of Sweden's first, in this case about Sweden's first king. Episode 22 was all about Erik Segersel, or Erik the Victorious, who ruled Sweden, or at least some of it, from around 970 to around 995. So it's still quite fuzzy around the edges when it comes to exact dates and locations and reliable sources. Yeah, but at least with Eric Sergesel, it's getting a little bit more reliable than some of the earlier so-called rulers that were basically at least half mythical, if you uh, think of King Weatherhat, for example. Oh yeah, King Weatherhat in the 800s, who could supposedly control the weather with his hat. Yeah, that's more of a maybe when it comes to his royal status, that's for sure. Now, even though sources are scarce when it comes to Eric Sagersel, he does get a mention both in the Icelandic sagas and by the Danish historian Saxo Grammaticus. And of course, by one source that we quoted a lot in the episodes that covered the late Viking Age and the early periods in the High Middle Ages, the Chronicle of Adam of Bremen. Yeah, that might have been our most read book of, of that year, or at least of those couple of months. But yes, information on Eric's rule is patchy, and we decided to put a question mark after the title Sweden's First King when it came to his episode, because it feels like he doesn't really deserve it. I did fight a lot with Denmark and the Danish king Sven Folkbeard, setting a long precedent uh, for Swedish and Danish kings fighting each other. Yeah, they did that a fair bit in this period, and uh, even in the current period when we're looking at the podcast, so some things didn't change, at least once Eric Sagersel started the tradition. And so the podcast and most historians and school-type history textbooks award the title of First King of Sweden to Eric's son, Olaf Hörkolung, who succeeded his father around 995, or at least became powerful enough in 995 to start thinking about being something that's close enough to a king. And there were three main reasons why he's usually called the first king, and so uh, let's list those, shall we? Yeah, he minted the first Swedish coins that had a ruler's face on them, which is a very kingly thing to do. It shows you're in charge, and people will accept that money with your face on it is the currency to go by. These first coins were minted in Sigtuna by English coin makers. Then he was the first Swedish ruler to be baptized, 
which most likely happened at Husabyshella in 1008, and he was christened probably by an English priest and missionary called Siegfried. Yeah, there's a lot of English connections at this point, isn't it? For English coin makers, English priests. It's all about the English. The baptism thing and the fact that he was a proper Christian, so to say, is probably a large contributing factor to why he is seen as the first real king, especially by later historians. After all, Christianity would go on to dominate Swedish politics and also dominate the mindset of Swedish people for centuries. The fact that Olof was Christian, even though records of his baptism are actually pretty thin, to say the least, it meant that he was seen as proper, acceptable, and not like those weird and godless heathens who worshipped Odin. And as a Christian king, he was also the first ruler to move Sweden into the Catholic club, so to speak, that was Western Europe in the Middle Ages. Becoming more of an established Catholic country in rule, statehood, and the mind of the people helped connect Sweden to the rest of Europe. Since all Catholic countries had the Pope as their main religious leader, and back then the Pope was also a leading figure in a much more political and state-governing sense too, that was a real unifying factor that helped facilitate contact between these countries, at least to a certain extent. And so, yes, the coins and the religion, they helped make Olaf the first king and set him apart, but what was the third bit? Well, we talked last time about how Sweden was late in unifying and solidifying as a state compared to his Scandinavian neighbours. Olof is the first ruler to be believed to have been in control of both Svealand, the region more to the east around Lake Mälaren, as well as Götaland, which is further south, like more around the lakes Vänern and Vietnam. We then moved on to episode 24, which was an on-location episode. It was. We went to Sigtuna. We saw a church ruin. We got chased by ducks. It was a great day out. It was pretty great. And uh, the reason why we went to Sigtuna wasn't the ducks, but it was, of course, that it's Sweden's oldest still remaining town, founded in the 980s. It's a lovely place that we really recommend you to visit if you're in the area. And uh, yeah, it was great. We saw Sweden's oldest street that's sort of still being mm-hmm. used, the main road. And that's where we bought our first uh, Christmas goat <laughs> Yeah. at the Christmas market. Well, you bought the Christmas goat, actually. Wow, we probably paid for it together. But yeah, I paid for the Christmas goat. We then moved on to episode 25, which is when we celebrated our first anniversary of the podcast in, oh, yeah. in the presence of the Christmas goat, probably. <laughs> yeah. Then, after the celebration with the goat, we looked at the High Middle Ages in general when we looked at the period 1020 to 1120, which, if you look at European history in general at this point, is probably most famous for being the period where people are starting to go off on crusade, at least in the latter part of the 1090s and into the 1100s. So, this is really famous, but the Swedes weren't really involved in that stuff, at least crusades to the Holy Land. Nah, it's a bit far away. There's anecdotal indications that maybe the odd person from here were in a crusading army, but not really anything substantial. 
Although in the 1120s, there was the crusade to Smallland. So people were crusading on Swedish territory or Danish territory. They didn't need to uh, go all the way to the Holy Land to do their crusading. Nah, local crusading. Exactly. Instead of going on crusades, apart from these few uh, crusading locals, the Swedes were busy enjoying the new tools that were being invented during this period, including the ironclad spade, which uh, might seem quite a boring and insignificant thing, but it was one of our favourite things to talk about because it actually helped move farming along quite substantially. And this was a period where new farming practices were introduced, including the practice of lay land, which essentially means that you rotate the fields you use over a course of several years, so uh, some of them get a bit of a rest, and it doesn't deplete the soil of all of its nourishment just by keep using it over and over and over and over again. These improvements in farming meant that there was less wilderness left in Sweden as people were spreading out to farm. I mean, don't get me wrong, there was still a lot of wilderness, just not as much as before. Also, the Swedes of the time now joined in a form of local village councils, bialog, to decide on communal matters for the local area. And they learned to make beer, and the practice of keeping thralls were dying out. Instead, wealthier farmers and landowners began hiring laborers to work their land in a system known as legoyun. These were some great words, like uh, Bialag is like the town team. Mm -hmm. uh, I can remember they were all like playing football together or whatever it was we said they did. And Lego Yoon was sort of Lego farmers or whatever. What does Yoon mean again? Yoon is, uh, is a paid employee. Oh, so Lego employees. Yeah. <laughs> Lego means uh, hired. Yeah, Lego has nothing to do with the tiny plastic toy bricks from Denmark. Lego is an old Swedish word, yeah, meaning to hire. So Lego Ewan is, is someone who's hired to labor. Well, that's all good fun. What wasn't necessarily fun was the drama in episodes 27 and 28, which were all about what happened to the rulers of Sweden after the inaugural king, Olaf, died. At first, his sons took over, first Arnund Jakob and then Emund. And Arnund has a reputation of being a tough, heavy-handed king. And that's because there's a law from the 1200s that Handley had a list of recent Swedish kings attached to it. And that's where Arnund gets his other name, apart from Arnund Jakob. He's called Arnund Kolb. Brenner or Arnund Coalburner, and that's because he was fond of burning down the houses of his opponents, which is very <laughs> charming. Eamond, on the other hand, had the excellent name The Slimy, or Den Slemma, and that's a fun Swedish translation of the Latin of Adam of Bremen, where he's called Eamond Pessimus the Worst, and uh, this was something people on Twitter were asking us about, Eamond the Slimy. And uh, whilst this is all going on, all these fun nicknames are being thrown about, there were local conflicts between Jörterland and Svealand, more wars with Norway and Denmark, of course, and parts of Sweden might have even been ruled by the famous Danish king Knut uh, for a period of time. We looked at how his coins were potentially minted at Sigtuna and lots of fun stuff like that. Yes, and in episode 28, we saw 10 reigns come and go over the period of 50 years. Just very dramatic. To remind ourselves of what that was like, let's read out the last two paragraphs from that episode as a summary. 
We started this episode with quite a lot of information on Stanshiel, the founder of this mini-dynasty. He was praised for his pragmatic attitude towards pagans in Sweden at the time and had a small war against Norwegian King Harald Hardrada. He died and a brief but bloody civil war began in Svealand as kings Eric and Eric fight it all out they both die and the next two kings are deposed in quick succession. There's Halstein, the son of Stenshil, and Arnund Godske, who was brought over from the Rus. This gave Håkon den Røde, Håkon the Red, the chance to become king of all of Sweden after hanging around ruling Västergötland since Stenshil died. After Håkon, in comes Inga the Elder, who brings his brother Halsten back for a bit of co-ruling, until, once again, they're deposed because they refuse to sacrifice to the pagan gods at Uppsala. Blotsvein, or Svein the Sacrificer, takes charge for three years whilst Inga is exiled in Vestergötland, but he returns to Svealand, kills Sven, and rules for 20 years or so in his second reign. So that was a bit of crazy stuff going on there. Well, I mean, we needed a bit of a break from all that drama, and so episode 29 was dedicated entirely to what Christianity looked like for the Swedes in this period, since the religion was now firmly established in the country. While it was initially quite weak, it grew stronger and really influenced all aspects of life and society in the Middle Ages. I think that was the main point that we were really trying to establish in that episode. The fact that Christianity wasn't like religion in today in many countries, where it's more of a personal matter, a faith, but it was also a basis for how society was structured. Yeah, and with Christianity came Sweden's first ever school system, although it was, of course, only a very small slither of society that managed to go to school. It also brought about a new sort of class system, where bishops and other mighty church leaders also became powerful and influential political figures at the same time. The church managed to levy its own taxes to get money too. And last but not least, it brought monasteries to Sweden, which weren't just religious institutions, but also early forms of hospitals. Yes. Then, after that episode, we moved on to cover even more kings. There were so many kings in this period. Uh, they came and went like clouds. We saw Halstein's sons, Philip and Inge the Younger, take charge at various points before Philip died, and Inge the Younger was poisoned. One of the later rulers that we talked about was Eric the Holy, who reigned in the 1150s, and who was revered as a saint, but hasn't been formally sanctified by the Pope. There were lots of kings and lots of fighting over the throne in this period, but there were also quite a few firsts in Swedish royal traditions here. We have the first Eriks Garter, the tour that the new king does to visit different areas of the country, and they elect him in different areas as he travels around. And that first king was Rangvald Knapphöfder in 1125, according to the old Vestergötter law book. But unfortunately for him, he was also killed on his Eriksgata <laughs> because half of the country didn't want him. And he uh, walked into one place and refused to have an election and was just stabbed to death. So not a very successful first Eriksgata. No, it went uphill dramatically from, from him. 
We also had the first of something that's become a staple of the podcast and as Swedish history as we saw the first wars against Novgorod. They're almost as popular as wars against Denmark. We covered the first Sweden-Novgorod conflict in the 1140s in episode 31, all about King Sverka. And it's amazing to think there's over 30 episodes that we first saw Sweden fight Novgorod, and we know it wasn't the last time. No, wars with Denmark and wars with Novgorod, or later Russia, is really the most repetitive feature of Swedish history, I must say. There was also the first election of a king at Murastenar, which was to become a tradition for a long time, as Sweden kept this practice of an elected system of monarchs before it became hereditary. I mean, in practice, it was often hereditary, but it was still an elected monarchy for much of the Middle Ages. Indeed. And episode 34 was all about the early history of Stockholm, which was founded in the late 1100s, following the decline of both Sigtuna and a lot earlier Birka. And uh, also drew the episode picture for that one, which is a bit unusual. It is. I, I use my talents sparingly when it comes to drawing the episode picture. But I did put a seal in that picture, which I'm quite pleased about. Yeah, I think we made a joke about the town seal um, yeah. at the time. We reached the 1200s in episode 35, which was about more kings from Sverka II to Yuan I. And he was one who had a great nickname. He was nicknamed the Trouserless. And that's because he came to the throne at such a young age he didn't even wear trousers yet. And this is when we really start to see the rise of the Bielbu family and the Bielbu dynasty. They had a tradition of being Jarls, the position of running the state in a sort of right-hand man to the king. Episodes 36 and 37, then, they were probably two of my favourite episodes to write and record. That's because you got to sing or hum the Law and Order theme tune, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> quite badly, but yes. I was very pleased that you agreed to call them Law and Order Medieval Sweden Unit, which is what we talked about. Uh, Sweden's oldest legal text, Vestjötalagen, came up in our timeline, so we used that as a point to talk about basically how the legal system developed, how Christianity and legal practices from the continent influenced it, and what sort of punishments there were, and just in general, all matters legal, or all legal matters, maybe. When we moved on with the chronological journey, we came upon the, one of the most well-known figures in medieval Swedish history, and that's Birja Jarl. I remember we called him Sweden's first true politician, which he sort of was in the sense that he was someone who rose to great prominence and important for the country, but wasn't a royal and was involved in all of this scheming and plotting and uh, power plays. Yes, he was definitely a statesman and a powerful one. Birger was the result, in a manner of speaking, of the Bialbu family's long climb up the social ladder, getting closer and closer to the throne. Birger himself married Ingeborg, one of the oh-so-many Ingeborgs we've come across, and she was daughter of King Eric, who reigned from 1208 to 1216. This was a marriage that would become very crucial as Birger worked and succeeded to make his eldest son Valdemar the king. And for much of Valdemar's early reign, it really was Birger that called all the shots. Several important things happened during Birger's reign. Although I guess reign isn't technically the right term, as a Jarl, he wasn't actually the ruler. 
but he certainly did all the ruling, so in that sense, he had a reign. There was internal conflict that he had to deal with, with a rebelling faction of noblemen known as the Folkungs, which led to the Battle of Sparsetra in 1247. Then there was the church meeting at Hwenninge in 1248, which dealt a lot with the role of Rome and the papacy in Swedish life and politics, and where they once and for all told all the Swedish priests that, come on, you're Roman Catholic priests, you need to start taking this celibacy thing seriously and not keep having wives and girlfriends like you've done up until now. So from now on, priests, no more special lady friends. Although those of you who already got a special lady friend that you live with, you don't need to kick her out. You can keep living with her until she dies. It's always nice to have a sort of overlap period for <laughs> yeah. new, new rules like that. But there really was hundreds of years where the Swedish priests just kind of, yeah, we're going to ignore this celibacy thing that the Catholic Church has. Like, we're so far away from Rome. Like, they don't know is We can keep having wives. But then at Wenning, uh, really, you remember this uh, Italian cardinal came up and just went, no, no more wives. Basta. <laughs> Basta with the special lady friends. Uh, Jarl was a formidable lawmaker when he wasn't uh, dealing with all this religious drama going on behind his back. And he fought wars with Denmark. And during his time, the position of dukedoms and the title of duke was established. And the role and importance of German merchants and early Hanseatic League traders also grew in Sweden, which he was in favour of. All in all, he was a very interesting character, and we did three whole episodes about him. And we also went to see the statue of him that's here in Stockholm, and the nice big but empty tomb that's by the city hall. It's empty because only after they built it in the early 1900s and covered it in gold did it become clear that Varnham Abbey, where his bogues were actually buried, wouldn't give them the remains to bury inside the tomb outside the new city hall. Yeah, you'd think they'd had that conversation before they went ahead and built the massive gold tomb for him here in Stockholm, but apparently that didn't happen. After Biajal and his sons, we went on a bit of a trip around the Baltic Sea. Well, not literally, but in the content of the podcast. First, we did an entire episode about Gotland, Sweden's largest island, which very much has its own unique history. Very much so. It's been quite independent for much of early history. The Iron Age and Viking Age was a real high point in Gotlandic history, and the island had its own coins, for example. However, the island did keep a relationship with Sweden, and that relationship grew stronger during the 12 and 1300s. Gotland is perfectly located for trade around the Baltic Sea, and most, if not all, of its fortune during the Viking and Iron Ages came from being a perfect stop-off on the journey to and from the Scandinavian peninsula and beyond. That would continue to be the case as we move through the Middle Ages. We talked about how Germans and German traders had risen in importance during Birger's time in power, and that was especially true on Gotland, where the city of Visby was almost entirely run by Germans and churches and stuff were all built by them. We then continued further out in the Baltic Sea and got to say moi to our friends in Finland. Moi, which is hi in Finnish by the way, 
The importance of Finland in Swedish history really can't be highlighted enough. It's vital to understand that essentially from the time when Sweden formed as a state, parts of Finland have always been included in that state, not as a colony, but as a two-way relationship between the east and the west side of the Bay of Bothnia. And I really hope we brought that message home in our episode that was all about the origins of this joined Swedo-Finnish history. We also covered some background to early Finnish history, how the relationship between Finland and Sweden has been understood and studied in history, and what that meant for Finland to always be caught in the middle between Sweden and Novgorod and later Russia, which, as we know, fought more battles against each other all day long. We were actually in Finland not long ago, Chris and I, and saw several examples of how events that we know as part of Swedish history actually took place in modern-day Finland. I know I repeat this often, but it's important to remember as we go through history that the Sweden we're talking about on the podcast now didn't look like Sweden does in 2022, or now in the modern day, that far north was still largely unexplored by the Swedish state and was home to the indigenous Sami population. The far south belonged to Denmark, and until 1808, Sweden, the land that is Sweden, looks like a horseshoe bent around the Bay of Bothnia, coming down both on the west, the Swedish side, and the east, the Finnish side. Yeah, there's definitely much more Finland to come as we move through history, which is great because Finland is great. We've now come to episode 42, which marked the start of a seven-episode-long expose of sorts, retelling the epic Shakespearean family feud that followed Beerjarl's death as his sons and then grandsons fought for power in the second half of the 1200s and early 1300s. Yeah, looking back on it, that was pretty mad. It's crazy how the relationship between people who represent such a small section of the population can go on to engulf an entire country. And it's not just an entire country, it was also an entire region, as Denmark and Norway got dragged in as well, and various alliances and intermarriages kept pulling people in, even if they wanted to escape. True, and this incredible period of conflict between the factions that the brothers represent also include two of the most famous events in Swedish medieval history, Hortunaleken and Nyköpings Gästabud. The Hortunaleken, or the Hortuna Games, was when, in September 1306, King Birger, the grandson and namesake of Birger, was at his estate Hortuna Kungsgård in Uppland, and his brothers, Dukes Erik and Valdemar, turned up, and they weren't very happy. The three had been fighting for years, or, well, it was more Erik and Valdemar versus Birger, it wasn't one versus one versus one, but it was two against one. But they'd recently signed a peace agreement in which the two dukes had promised to stop conducting their own foreign policy for their dukedoms and would at least start listening to King Birger. So, thinking this was a happy visit as part of their new way forward as brothers, 
Birger throws a nice dinner for his brothers, who then, I imagine, just as they'd finished dessert, captured the king and queen, took the king to Nishapingshu's castle, and he's kept prisoner there and made to agree to Sweden being split in three, with each brother getting one of the parts. And that was when we said that was when Sweden officially ceased to exist. Yes, very dramatic, especially when you consider that some of the courtiers managed to smuggle Bielos' son and heir, Magnus, out of Hiltuna and bring him to safety with his grandparents in Denmark. Yeah, very lucky for Magnus there, young little Magnus. Although his luck did run out, considering he was captured and executed 14 years later in a later instalment of the conflict between his father and uncles. Nyköping's Gästabud, or the Feast of Nyköping, took place in December 1317 and is often described as Birjö's long-awaited revenge on his brothers following Hotunaleken. Essentially, he does the same thing to them that they did to him, which begs the question how gullible these people really were. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something that we've seen come up, is people being uh, quite naive when they attend these dinner parties. What Birger does is invite his brothers to Nishaping's house to celebrate Christmas, to unite and atone after many years of conflict. However, once he'd convinced his brothers that their entourage of armed men should not have quarters in the castle and uh, go off somewhere else, and had gotten his brothers both suitably drunk, he attacked them with the words, Minnes ide norkot of Hortuna leak. Do you remember any of the Hortuna games? And at least that's what he said, according to the later quite biased Eric Chronicle. <laughs> yeah, but it's a, it's a powerful phrase. Indeed, and he locks his brothers up and supposedly throws the key away in the Shelping River and they eventually die in captivity of starvation the following year. Crazy stuff, really. And after all that, I think we felt we needed a bit of a break from crazy fighting royals. And so we did an episode that was much more on economic and enterprise history. Yes, that was episode 50 on the Farlu Mine, or the Copper Mountain Mine, Sweden's oldest and sometimes called the world's oldest still-operating limited company. We looked at how mining came to be so important for Sweden and what the community around this huge mine looked like, and part of that community was Fat Mats. Oh yeah, who could forget dear old Fat Mats, who died in an accident that also buried him in the mine in 1677, only to then be dug up by accident in 1719, being relatively well-preserved thanks to the special soil composition in the mine, if you ignore the fact that his legs had been severed from his body, but it was well-preserved, and put on display in the local church. And Fat Mats would go on to inspire German romanticist writers in the early 1800s, which is quite a fate for a miner from Forlund, I must say. <laughs> That's for sure. And we don't really know why he was called Fat Mats either. Um, he presumably was fat, but uh, it makes it a little bit strange that that's the name he's gone down in history with. We said goodbye to Fat Mats and continued on with an episode filled with random trivia about life in medieval Sweden. Everything from sickness and medicine to marriage, family life, kids, clothes, games and art. The whole bunch of stuff. From episode 52 to episode 55, 
we started the many episodes that would all cover King Magnus's reign. After all, his reign is the second longest in Swedish history. It spans for over 44 years. So it's no surprise that a lot happened in this time. We won't really spend much time summarizing it as it's all quite recent in the chronology of the podcast. But we should say that in episode 56, the Black Death came to Sweden. And so we looked at how that happened, what the disease actually was, and how people tried to avoid it and try to cure it. Importantly, we also looked at the terrible consequences of the disease. The deaths, the shattered communities and families, but also the economic consequences like falling property prices and building works being stopped or delayed. One of King Magnus's great ideas to combat the plague was that people should walk barefoot to church, which uh, is about as useful as a chocolate-covered teapot. The last episode that we should give a special mention to in the recap would be episode 59, the second of two episodes which I don't feature with my lovely Skånska voice, uh, at least for the bulk of the content. I was unfortunately at home sick when you went to the National History Museum here in Stockholm and met Thomas Neumann, PhD student at Stockholm University. You two did an episode live from the museum exhibition on the Battle of Visby in 1361, which was when King Valdemar of Denmark attacked Gotland after he had first taken back Skåne from Sweden. Thomas was so knowledgeable about the battle and there's so many interesting archaeological finds that made sure we had a lot to talk about. Yeah, I'm gutted I couldn't come. But still, I was back in the next episode, which was all about St. Birgitta, Sweden's first, and for a long time only, properly recognised saint. We did a biographical episode on her, where we looked at her life, her travels, and her plans for a monastery in Vardstena. Birgitta's thing, so to say, was that she had visions, often very passionate visions, strong messages from Christ and the Virgin Mary that were often political and did not mince words about what people should do and how they should live life. Quite often her visions seemed to be about what King Magnus and other ruling figures should or should not do too. We looked at Birgitta's social standing and how that allowed her to be as influential as she was, and arguably remains to some extent to this day, since the monastic order that she founded, the Brigitines or the Birgitta Orden, is still around and still does some work. It is, and I had lunch with a colleague of mine recently who had stayed at a guest house run by the Brigitine nuns here in Sweden over the summer, and she said it was lovely, very nice and peaceful. That's great. So we're now onto the very recent episodes that are part of the current story, so we won't recap those, but just a reminder that there are some helpful family trees on our website if you need a bit of a recap of that side of the story. Definitely. So yeah, that's it. This has been a quick-ish two-episode recap of what we've covered so far in over 60 episodes and two years of podcasting. Uh, do you have any reflections, Chris? Well, it's been a lot of history.
It sure has. Uh, it's been really interesting to go back through old scripts and just see how much stuff has changed and how we've gone from having sort of predominantly archaeological sources and original texts that were written outside of Sweden to having much more sources and written documents produced here at the time the events took place. Yeah, and I think one of the main themes, or whatever we want to call it, that we've seen across these 60 episodes is Sweden emerging as a unit, a country, a state, an entity, a group of people. And for much of the history that we've covered, there wasn't really a thing called Sweden. So this has been a long process, but now we're, of course, well into the Middle Ages and that state or the political entity very much exists. Of course, there's still quite different from Sweden today, and both in landmass, population, and so many other things. So there's going to be plenty more changes and updates to come on the story. Yeah, it's been very interesting to follow how my country came into being, so to say. But we should not forget that we've done six special episodes as well, completely detached from this overarching timeline. Of course, we have. We first talked about the civilian dog tags that were issued to all Swedes between 1960 and 2010, and that came about after Orsa found hers in an envelope. And along a similar line, we then went to the bomb shelter on our building when we first moved to Stockholm and did an episode all about the bomb shelters that you can find across Sweden, in places like residential buildings and office blocks. We did. We've also uploaded the talk we gave at the Intelligence Speech Conference in 2021 about Sweden during the Second World War and why the country wasn't invaded. We uploaded that as a special episode. We marked the 40th anniversary of the Chernobyl disaster with a special episode where we looked particularly at the role Sweden played in making the accident known to the outside world. And then we did an episode all about Sweden's role in the early Olympics and the first Swedish Olympians. And that was when Orsa spoke very passionately about bringing back tug-of-war as an Olympic sport. And uh, have you got any progress on that? Well, I'm still working on the petition to the International Olympic Committee. So who knows? Maybe for Brisbane 2032, tug-of-war will come back. I don't know. Finally, we did a special episode about the history of Skorna, and particularly a few of our places to visit that we did uh, semi-recently. But now that's enough looking back, or at least uh, looking back at what we've already covered, because we need to do more looking back just for episodes we haven't written or recorded yet. So All we do is look back, I suppose, as a history podcast. We're looking forward to the new and exciting developments in medieval Sweden. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask us or just want to get in touch in general, you can do that via the usual means on email, Facebook and Twitter. And just, yeah, let us know. Indeed. In the next episode, we'll catch up with Queen Margarete in Denmark and Norway and see what she gets up to now that both her husband and her son who is also set to potentially rule Sweden, now that they are dead. But that's for next week's episode, so do make sure to tune in for that. And for now, it's goodbye and good night. Bye. Hey, Dale.
nonetheless, his relics are in a very nice, very golden box on display in Uppsala Cathedral. And we saw it when we went there on a very cold and very rainy day. Was it rainy? It was very rainy. I thought it was rainy. sunny. No, it was very rainy and very cold. It was so cold that we had brought sandwiches to have like a little picnic and we ate them in the car in the parking lot outside the church. I think you're misremembering this. No. This is in Uppsala Cathedral. Pardon? This is in Uppsala Cathedral. Yes. We walked to the the to the sci-fi secondhand bookshop. Yeah, and bookshop. it was raining. Yeah. Yeah. No, it wasn't. This was not... This It was sunny. There's a picture of us outside Uppsala Cathedral in bright sunshine. Well, there must have been a rain of sunshine beaming down then. It was terribly windy no. and rainy. <laughs> this, this is, is a lie. Not, this is not important at all for the listeners. If we can't even get our here. own history right, how can the listeners trust us to talk about Swedish history? Well, this was two years ago and we were both there. Exactly. We were both there and it rained. It, it definitely didn't rain. <laughs> no, I want to no, no. ask the listeners for help to prove that it rained, but I don't know how they're going to help me. Because that was the same day we went to Gamla Uppsala. Yeah, and did you not remember? It didn't rain then, but it was so windy. We were walking around those hills, the king's grave, and it was so, so windy. It was... I <laughs> this don't is terrible podcasting. I don't believe it. <laughs> Two people talking about what the weather was like. Two what? years ago. Two years ago, and they went on a trip to a town an hour away from where they lived. Yeah, but... <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, we need to I don't move remember. on. This is we terrible to, content for the listeners. This is excellent content. This is exactly why the listeners want us to ramble on about rubbish like this. We'll leave it in at the end, though. Um, so we're sorry. 